in 50, maybe 70 years, every single one of us may be dead. (laughs) 50 to 70 years, look around, and you could see where someone once sat. That's the harsh reality. So, let me just share with you that when death comes, it can either be faced with fear or with faith. With fear or with faith. And so we've got to ask ourselves, which one will we do? And I would present to you that Jesus is God becoming a man, flesh. And it can be the difference between whether you die with fear or with faith. The incarnation. What does it matter that God became a man? If God could have saved us any way he chose... Why did he choose becoming a man? And has everything to do with you dying. So with that thought of mind, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 10 through 18. The main thrust of the message up to this point in the book of Hebrews is do not neglect such a great salvation. Why? Well, in chapter 1, Jesus outspeaks the prophets. He outdoes the angels. He outlasts the universe. And he is the one who's speaking to us. So whatever he says, you better listen. Don't neglect it. This one who is speaking to us is greater than the angels. But yet, as we looked at last time, is made for just a little while. Lower than the angels and quoting Psalm chapter eight. And in such God has given to man dominion over all the universe. Except death. It's not yet done until Jesus came and Jesus outdid death. So at the end times, we find that Jesus outspeaks even the final power of death. And so when the author speaks about that, he says, you know what? Let me tell you a little bit more about that. And that's what we're going to look at today. The little bit more about Jesus outdoing death. And so we find ourselves in verse 10, reading through verse 18. And I pray that this will be a great eternal blessing to you. And that it will provoke you from what we call suicidal desires. What do we mean by suicidal desires? To desire the creation above the creator and to live for the creation above the creator is suicidal and that it will destroy yourself in living such a way. And so I want to just keep you from that. The word of God wants to keep me from that. And so I pray that is the end result and that you would pay great attention to this salvation. And so with this thought of mind, let's read 
verse 10 going through verse 18. Why the incarnation? Why is this such a thing? And so let's stand as we read together this word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated. In this passage, he is talking about why God became flesh. Why is it important that Jesus is a human? Not just appearing like a human. Uh, not just having some kind of dual aspect. But having both God and humanity in one. And so we're going to look at this and discover five reasons why it was important uh, for God to become flesh. This is a great Christmas passage. I just shame it's not December right now uh, because it's why there is a Christmas. Why is this important? And so we come to verse 10. And uh, after talking about uh, Jesus being made a little while lower than the angels being crowned with glory, tasted death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that and I love this for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, don't forget the exalted nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one as to why anything exists. Whatever you have in your life, be it uh, family or absence of family, being money or absence of money, jobs or absence of employment, a future or an absence of a future. Whatever is existing in government and uh, materials, it all exists for Jesus Christ. He is the reason for everything. So don't forget his exalted nature. This one, it says, is fitting in bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the idea is this one had to suffer and by suffering became complete in that the purpose was to bring many sons to glory. So why did Jesus become a man? Why did God take on flesh in order to bring many sons to glory? And I would take this to mean sons in a generic sense, uh, not talking just to men, but to men and women Mankind in general, humans in general, to bring them to glory. Now, 
What does that mean in bringing many sons to glory? I think that what he's talking about here is restoring them to a former glory. Restoring them to the glory of God that he intended when he made mankind. You remember in Genesis, uh, this is great, this is a good refresher for you. Those who have been with us the last year and a half, this should ring some bells for you. Uh, what did God intend in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that God made mankind in his image. That there was no sin there, that there was a, a intimacy found with God that was unique because there was no presence of sin. And we talked about what that means to be made in the image of God. And I'm going to just, this is something I've learned this week in studying. What what does that mean to be made in the image of God? I believe that what it's talking about when it says being made in the image of God is being made in the capacity to be like Christ. When God made Adam and Eve, they were like Jesus. They were like the Son of God in their nature, in their character rather, their personality. It exhibited the character traits of God in the flesh, of Jesus Christ. We we think about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Romans 8, 28 is one that's often quoted, that uh, talking about the sovereignty of God, uh, how it all comes together for His purposes, uh, the bad and the good alike comes for His purposes. But verse 29, for those... Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right. God is working in our life to make us in the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Romans 8.29 tells me that God is working to make me in the image of his son. I read Romans 2.10. It tells me that this is bringing me to... uh, the sons of glory, to restore me to the place of glory. So that tells me that Genesis 2 and 3, when mankind was made, they were made in the image of Christ. And so when sin came in, it reversed and messed up that image. I still had the capacity to be like Christ, but my marriage, my work, even having babies, it's all been marred by sin. And so as I become more like Christ, my marriage becomes more like what God intended it to be. My work becomes more like what God intended it to be. My parenting becomes more like what God intended it to be. And so this is the work that he's doing. And so when I can be like Christ because God became a man in order to bring me to a restored place of glory, to bring many sons to glory. Now, he talks about this a little bit. He says that, uh, he did this, this one through whom all exists, should be made the founder, should be should make the founder of their salvation perfect. That's an interesting phrase, founder of their salvation. Some of you uh, may have a different word for that. If you have King James, it has the captain, the captain of our salvation. That's a fascinating phrase. Some of you might have the phrase pioneer. Of our salvation. This word, uh, founder, captain, pioneer, all comes from uh, a, a good translation of, of what the word originally means in the Greek. Uh, the word literally means to, to lead ahead, to go before. And so you could say that, yes, he is the, the Daniel Boone 
of our salvation. And you're the one that goes and explores Cumberland Gap and opens up the West for us. And so he opens up salvation. If you ever go walking through the woods, uh, it's always uh, good to have a, a child go before you with a stick. Why? Well, it's something they like to do, but there's always webs in the woods. And the child goes with the stick, paving the way, and they takes the webs. And so what the scripture is saying, he is the pioneer. He is the one who goes before us and takes the webs of our salvation. But it's also the idea of, of a captain, of a founder. In fact, uh, one person, Julius Scott, referred to this phrase and, and described it this way. To give in its full range of meaning, the word designates an individual who opened the way into a new area for others to follow. He founded the city in which they dwelt. He gave his name to the community. He fought its battles and secured the victory and then remained as a leader, ruler, hero of his people. That is what Jesus is in our salvation. I love that phrase. But then it says he makes, uh, he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now what does that mean? Does this imply that Jesus was some way imperfect? Was he flawed? No. The word there to make perfect means to make complete. If you will, liken it to uh, Olympics are to a racing event in which you must go through what's called trials. If you go and win your trial, you will be qualified for the Olympics. All right. And so that's the idea here is that Jesus is going through the trials to make evident what is already there in his nature. And so he endures being a man. He endures the sufferings therein to show to everybody He's qualified to be the founder of our salvation. So through suffering, his perfection is tested. So why is it important that God became a man? Because when he became a man, he made it so that I could be like Christ. He made it so you can be like Christ. If Jesus did not become a man, we would have no hope of being restored to that place of, of, of glory with God. Now we keep on reading. Why is it important that God became a man? Well, to make sons into a family. To make sons into a family. Notice verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that means the one who sets us apart, okay? That word sanctified, who sets us apart. And those who are being set apart all have one origin. So Jesus, he is calling us out, and we who are all called out, we have the same origin with Jesus, and that is God the Father. That is why he is not why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so in verse 12, he starts quoting Old Testament references. He starts quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. And we have it here in verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. Now, Psalm 22 uh, is what Jesus quotes while he's on the cross. You remember that phrase? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a uh, from Psalm 22. And when he stated that, he gave uh, permission to all the early church and all who comes after to interpret Psalm 22 as about Jesus Christ. All right. And we'll see in that references that there's some interesting things that that David writes that 
did not really pertain to him, but did pertain to Jesus on the cross. And then one of the statements is what he quotes here. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And so when he sees you and he sees me, those who trust in him, he says, they are my brother. They are my sister. And I am not ashamed to declare Raymond as my brother before God the Father. And so verse 13, he quotes another passage. He quotes Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 17 and verse 18. Now, Isaiah chapter 7, you remember this is the one that we quote in uh, Christmas time. A virgin shall conceive and I shall call his name Emmanuel. All right. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In Isaiah chapter 9, uh, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace. All right. And so we understand 7 and 9 referring to the Messiah. And so he picks a chapter right in between Isaiah chapter 8. And he says this too is talking about the Messiah. And he says in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. He's saying this is what Jesus is stating. Why is this important? This tells me that Jesus lived the same way that you and I lived. He trusted God and obeyed God. When he came time to dying, he had to trust God that he would be resurrected. Just like when we come time to dying, we do the same thing as Jesus and we trust God that there will be a resurrection. And so he says, Jesus did the same. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. What is he bringing out here? He says, there are children, there are brothers, there are sisters. We are a family. Jesus became a man so that all mankind, if they would trust in God, would be a part of the eternal family that is greater than any race difference, greater than any biological difference. It is one united in spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that when I go to uh, East Asia, I go to India, I go to Nepal, I go to Belarus, I can go to Mexico and I can see a brother or sister in Christ. And we have more in common. Listen, I have more in common with an Indian believer than I do American who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know their language, but there is more in common. And listen, I have more in common with a believer in Kenya than I do a biological family member that does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is an eternal bond with an African believer, whereas there is only a temporal bond of blood with a biological family member that is not one in Christ. And so Jesus says, brother and sister, and it is true. And we can rejoice with that. Now, we keep on reading verse 14. We'll find the third reason as to why God became a man, the incarnation, not only to bring many sons to glory, not only to make the sons into a family, but verse 14, as we keep on reading here, I love this one. He became a man to destroy death, Satan, and to release us from the fear of death. <laughs> he had to become a man to do that. Why? Could not God just with a word say, be gone, Satan? He could. He could. But it would have 
had no benefit to us humans if he did that. And it would have marked God as faithless and not true to his word. And I could not trust him to be true to his word. He had to become a man for the salvation to be effective to you and to me and for God to be true to his word. Let's explain that. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, which, by the way, the word share there is the word koinonia. We know that word is fellowship. Listen, fellowship is not eating. (laughs) Okay, it's not whether I sat down with the table and ate with someone. But what was behind that, that I was willing to sit down with this person because I had something in common with this person. Here he's saying that children have something in common, that we are humans Flesh and blood is the word for that. And so when the Bible talks about the fellowship of the believers, that is, what he's saying is that there's something in bonds with us, in common with us. And it is that we focus on that which unites us, that we have a common gathering place. And so since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. Of the same things. He took hold of. It's interesting that word means to take hold of. Not the same word for fellowship or or to share. But he took hold of. God, God humbled himself. Not by what was taken from him. That's how we get humbled, isn't it? Something's taken from us. And so we're humbled. God was humbled. And that something was added to him. And he added your nature. My nature. To him, And therefore he was humbled by that act. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that being flesh and blood. Why did God became a man? Why did he become flesh? Verse 14, so that he could die. <laughs> he himself partook of the same things that through death. All right. So he had to do this so that he could die. He, he is one of the few uh, only ones that we know that he wanted to live so that he could die. Most of us want to live so that we can live. He wanted to live so that he could die. Why did he want to die? That he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Who has the power of death? The devil. The devil, but he is destroyed. He is destroyed by Christ. Now, let's talk about that because we think, well, if this is true, why do people die? Why isn't that when Jesus resurrected, death ceased to exist and all the graveyards went out of business? Why didn't that happen? The word destroy literally means to render inoperative. To render inoperative. Not to be annihilated, but to render inoperative. Okay? It's, it's somewhat akin to, uh, D-Day in World War II, that everybody was longing for the day the Allies would come into French soil where that they could take more attacks on the Nazi government. And so D-Day was a marking of the beginning of the end. Nazis were still in existence, but in many ways they were restricted. And so when the crucifixion occurred and the resurrection resurrection occurred, death was rendered inoperative in the 
ultimate meaning of it. And we will wait the day when it is totally annihilated and that it ceases to exist. Now, uh, it says that the devil has the power of death. This is something that was granted to the devil by mankind. Mankind gave this power to uh, to uh, the devil. Now, why is it that Jesus had to become a man for him to destroy death? All right, let's let's look at this. Genesis chapter three, verse fourteen and fifteen. You remember this? I hope you do. If you've been with us uh, this past year, there's a reason we talked on this and we preached on this. Genesis three, verse fourteen and fifteen. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What was it that this one did? Satan, he deceived mankind and led them to disobey God. So because you do this, you will be cursed. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, singular offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. For God to bruise the head of Satan, he had to do it through the seed of Eve. In other words, he had to be human. If he was not human, then he would have not been true to the promise he gave to Satan himself. Did you know that the promise in Genesis 3.15 was given to Satan? It involved Eve, it involved mankind, but it was given to Satan. He warned him, I will destroy you and I will use mankind to do so. This is why God had to be a man to do this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. By counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he publicly disgraced Jesus, uh, Satan. Uh, Satan thought he had the victory in destroying or killing Jesus, but it became clear to him, unfortunately, which too late for Satan, that he was in fact destroyed when Jesus died on the cross. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. The power that Satan had in death was unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin. And that was the only bullet in his gun. So when Jesus comes and dies on the cross... To pay the penalty of our sin and gives forgiveness. He takes away the bullet. He's like Barney Fife. <laughs> what does he do when he loses his bullet? He can roar. He can scream. He can shout. But he has lost the power of death. The bullet has been taken from him. And so scripture rightly says that Satan has been destroyed. And it is like... What I shared a few weeks ago, that Satan is the chicken with his head cut off. 
He may run around headless for a little while, but when it's all said and done, he will collapse. And he's scary. (laughs) A headless chicken is a scary thing. Satan is a scary one, but understand the bullet's been taken from him. Why? Because Jesus became a man. God became man and died. Listen, verse 15. Why did he destroy the one with the power of death to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery? The fear of death is something that is in all of mankind. The fear of death. One of the old ancient scholars says, where can I go to escape death? Show me the country. Show me the people to whom I may go upon whom death does not come. Show me a magic charm against it. If I have not one, what do you wish me to do? I cannot avoid death. So in 30 to 50 years, when every single one of us is gone, 70 years for some of us, it's okay. It is okay. But R.C. Sproul said, I don't fear death, I fear dying. The deterioration, degeneration, senality, being insane, the pain. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, why did Jesus come as a man? Why is it important that God became a man? Well, we keep reading here, verse 16. We'll find out something else. He became a man to fulfill A promise made to Abraham. To fulfill a promise made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Y'all remember that? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. says, look, in you I will bless the world. From your seed, nations will come. There will be land given to you in the seed of Abraham. We see also in Genesis uh, 17, verse 4 and 7. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you." Notice the tense of the word offspring, singular or plural. It makes a difference. And the New Testament makes note of that later on. Romans chapter 14, verse 13 and 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inheritance of law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he tells us that we can be children of Abraham, we can be of the offspring of Abraham, not because of biological uh, genes, but because we enter and approach God in the same way Abraham did, and that was by faith. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Because I make Christ my Lord, 
I am considered by God of a child of Abraham. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. So what he's saying is in Galatians or Genesis 17, when that promise was made, he was making it to Abraham and he was making it to Christ. And so for God to be true to his word... He had to have a man uh, uh, himself take on man, not just the seed of Eve, but specifically of the offspring of Abraham. It was important that a virgin was born, a virgin would conceive that was of the line of Abraham and even more specifically of the line of David. Why? Because he was true to his word. Most of us forget promises made. A few weeks ago, much less a few years ago, can you imagine thousands of years ago, God says, oh yeah, I made a promise and I've got a plan. It's going to be true. It's going to be exactly as it said. Why is that important? Because it tells me that God is true to his word. And if he if Jesus says to us in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I would now believe him because he is true to his word. This salvation that's in Jesus Christ is great. Do not neglect it. It is not as something that you might read in the newspaper that may or may not be true. It's not something that's on the Internet that may be uh, true. It is true. And do not neglect him. Now, verse 17, let's look at the last reason given in this text why God became a man. Why is incarnation here to bring many sons to glory, to make the sons into a family, to destroy Satan, death, and release us from the fear of death, and then to fulfill a promise made to Abraham, but then, verse 17, to become a merciful and faithful high priest. To become a merciful and high priest in other words, he wanted to represent mankind. And to represent mankind, he had to be a man. To be a priest, he must be one with that which he represents. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make Propitiation for sins of the people. That's a big word. Propitiation. Uh, if you've sat with me for a while, I hope you've heard that word before. Maybe you've had understanding given to it. But the word propitiation simply means to satisfy the just demands of a God who has anger against sin. To satisfy the just demands of a holy God who has anger against sin. So he satisfied that just demand. When he died on the cross, he satisfied God for your sin, for my sin. The Old Testament used the same language and referred to it as the mercy seat that would cover the ark of God. You remember that golden box that within it was the, the Ten Commandments from the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That, that, that uh, story there. Uh, actually was based on something that uh, was true in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant, that if mankind was to look into the Ark of the Covenant, if that golden lid, that mercy seat, was not there and there sprinkled with 
the blood of a perfect animal, following the just demands or the right demands, the exact demands of God, if that didn't happen, then that would have meant certain doom Physical, instant death. But because that mercy was seat was there, sprinkled with the blood and followed the orders, there a priest could go one time a year and intercede on behalf of all the people in the day of atonement at the mercy seat. And so Jesus becomes the mercy seat. He becomes the satisfaction of God for your sin, my sin. The high priest is unique. Usually the priest is interceding and giving offerings. And Jesus does that. But not only does he give offerings, he becomes the offering to satisfy the just demands of God for your sin. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The emphasis here is not necessarily on the suffering, but the grammatical sentence brings emphasis on being tempted. He did not give in to the temptation. He suffered by resisting. Do you know that if you resist temptation, then you feel the full force of the temptation? Most of us give in long before we ever feel the full force. Jesus endured a degree of temptation that you and I have not known in that he resisted perfectly. Help you understand that. Imagine holding your breath. Giving, not giving into temptation is like holding your breath underwater. I do this with my children. Try to see who can hold the breath the longest. I outdo them. A couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is that I know what pain feels like. I know when too much pain is, is there. And I can sit through pain a little bit better than they can. When they feel pain, they get up. And take a breath. I know that I can feel pain. But there's still a little bit more pain I can feel before I totally black out. <laughs> and so I feel that pain longer. More severely than they do. Jesus feels the pain of temptation longer. More severely than we do. Because he does not give in. So it rightly says... He knows your temptation. Does not necessarily mean that he has sensed and felt every possibility and variety. I do not believe that he felt the temptation toward homosexuality. Does that mean this verse is wrong? No. It means that he felt a degree of temptation. Severity of it. That you and I have never experienced. And so when we say... God, you don't know how tempting this is. He can say, yes, I do. And I've resisted it. Therefore, I know a greater degree than you know now. So that being said, that suffering that's taken place. When he calls us to do something, he's not calling us to do something that he himself has not been willing to do and done. I was talking with one of my buddies who worked with the police force and SBI. He's now in the bomb squad. Who's telling me about um, mace? He says, "I don't know if you realize this, but if you, uh, you know, in the training and learning how to use mace, we had to be maced. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they had to go in a room, 
And they were sprayed with mace. So that they would know what it's like when they mace someone else. And know how much is too much and what the pain feels like. Jesus has been maced. And when he calls us to a task, we may say, but God, do you not know how difficult this will be? Do you not know what I am at giving up? Jesus says, I do. And I know when it's too much. You'd say, well, if I do this, I don't know how I'll have the strength to do it. I'd say, well, that's okay, because that's the point God wants to get you to. Sometimes we, rightly, we say that, well, you know, God's not going to put us on anything that we can't do. But yet, Scripture also says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what that tells me? Everything's fair game. As bad as you could dream. It's fair game. You say, well, I don't have the resources to endure that. Exactly. That's the point. He doesn't want to teach us to rely on ourselves. He wants to teach you to rely on him through whom you can do all things. We say, well, doesn't scripture say that no temptation is given to you except such as common to man? And with the temptation, make a way of escape? Yes, it does say that. Christ is the way of escape and he will provide for you what is needed to endure it and not sin. Consider how Jesus died. You remember I was talking about, you know, all right, well, we're not afraid of death, but we are afraid of dying and all that goes with it. The degeneration, the loss of our powers, the humiliation of senality, of being senile, the pain, the breaking away of loved ones. I would just remind you that Jesus died also. He endured all the accompanying temptations and sufferings therein. Don't forget, Jesus was the one who said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which seems just a hairbreadth away from blasphemy. So, Jesus says, I know, I know, I am the priest that comes along with you, and I know this pain. If you're tempted to despair towards self-pity, resentment, anger, or unbelief, this passage tells me that Christ will come to help you. He is merciful and faithful as a high priest. And I know that because of Christmas. Because of incarnation. Because God became a man. So that he can endure this. Some of the best military commanders are not the ones in the ancient times that were on the horses. But who would from time to time march with the men. So they would know the trial that the men themselves are doing. What they are commanding them to do. Jesus is that type of captain who is not just on a white horse, but is also on a cross. He is both. So, understand, God becoming a man, 
is huge. It's critical. In fact, if he does not become a man, we can't trust him. And we have no salvation given to us because no one of mankind is representing us and satisfying the just demand of your sin. Let me share the points this way. Why is it important that God became a man? God became a man to bring you to glory. To bring Jared to a restored place of glory. To bring Jarrell to a place of glory. God became a man to bring John into a family. To bring Chris into a family. God became a man to destroy Satan, death, and release Ed from the fear of death. To release Jericho from the fear of death. God became a man to become a merciful and faithful high priest to Judy. Became a faithful, merciful high priest to Michael. Don't neglect this salvation. You know, I had a rock collection for a few years. I had a nice little compartment, you know, labels. This is pyrite. This is, uh, this is a ruby. This is a sapphire. This is an arrowhead. This is shark's teeth. And I was excited about it for a while. And I couldn't help but go anywhere but look at the rocks. I wonder, is there something I can add to my collection? If you were to ask me, where is your rock collection? And I have no idea. It may be in the basement of a parent's house. It might be. Or it might have got thrown out. How is it that something that dictated everything I thought and did now is just a memory? Other things. Other things came in. And took my attention. Started little bit by little bit. But my focus shifted to the point where it's just a memory. Don't treat your salvation like it's a hobby. Or you, oh, I prayed one time. I surrendered. I asked God to forgive me of my sins one time. I went to church. I was a part of a Sunday school. I read the Bible. I don't know. Something happened. I'm not at that place anymore. It's just a memory. Could it be that someday it had become like my rock collection where all it is is just a memory and someone asks you, where is God? And you say, I have no idea. He left me. No, you left him. I'm sure that rock collection had some valuable things, but in no way does it compare to Jesus, to Christ. Listen to the admonition that Hebrews gives you. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Because where can you go to get such benefits as these? And listen, it will be evident when you die whether you have neglected the salvation of God or not. If your life is filled with fear, then it is evident, it is telling that there is no great emphasis of Christ in your life. The moment when the doctor calls you and tells you you have Maybe 
a few months. Let's call you in. In that moment in time, it will be revealed how you lived your life. And for a lot of folks, they play catch up and said, oh my, I've neglected Christ and I have fear in my life. Let me take the remaining months, weeks and days and give it to God. Friends, do not be as such as these. In Jesus, Philip Brooks wrote, here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with the world except the power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down, laid in a barred grave through the pity of a friend. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. Today, he is the centerpiece of the human race, the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings uh, that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. The explanation He is the son of God. He is the risen savior. And he is a man. Bow to him. Let's pray.